McAfee is the device-to-cloud cybersecurity company and a trusted partner for federal government agencies, state and local governments, and education providers. Inspired by the power of working together, McAfee creates solutions that make our world a safer place. By building solutions that work with other companies' products, McAfee helps public sector entities orchestrate cyber environments that are truly integrated, where protection, detection, and correction of threats happen simultaneously and collaboratively. For more information, visit mcafee.com slash public sector. Welcome to Securiosity for April 19th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, ready to bring you the world's best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. This week, we are going to take you around the world on a tour of criminal hacking campaigns, four countries, four continents, and millions of data points out on the web where they shouldn't be. In our interview, we are talking with Andrew Morris of Grey Noise about the way he is making it easier for security analysts to do their jobs. And what would this week be without some Mueller report talk? So we have plenty of it, and we'll get right to it. President Donald Trump pushed top intelligence officials to refute information tied to the investigations into his connections with Russia, according to the Mueller report. According to the report, Trump phoned then-NSA Director Admiral Mike Rogers on March 26, 2017, to complain the investigation was messing up his ability to get things done with Russia. The president also asked Rogers if there was anything he could do to refute news stories linking him to Russia. Richard Ledgett, the former NSA deputy director who was reportedly present for the exchange, drafted a memo about the substance of the call. He and Rogers both signed it and locked it in a safe. Ledgett said, quote, it is the most unusual thing he has experienced in 40 years of government service. End quote, the report states. Greg, is this more bizarre or dangerous? Both, I guess. I I mean, this is the type of stuff that has sunk presidencies before. I believe in Watergate, um, Nixon called the CIA director to tell the CIA director to tell the FBI to stop investigating him. So this type of stuff tends to bring down presidencies in our history. So the fact that it's pretty much out there is, you know, bizarre, dangerous. It's dangerous from the standpoint of Intelligence agencies are supposed to be pulled out of uh, the political messes that often gone on. I mean, that's in an ideal world, and we know that this country isn't necessarily will we'll keep up with, with the ideals that it presents. But at the same time, it's just such a brazen request that I, I, I can't believe more wasn't made of it when it was first brought to light. You know, this is just, you'd think people would learn from other presidencies not to do things like this. Well, I mean, I mean we, could, we could say that about this administration on literally hundreds of events that have transpired since 2016. I mean, this was just one this, little nugget in the entire Mueller report that just happened to stick out. I mean, there was plenty in there that was like, uh, are, are we really going to just put this all out here and not react or do anything about it from a legal or I mean, a political standpoint? If you're going to do something like this, you do it in person and you do it without witnesses. Right. Like, and that, that's the amazing thing. Like, it, it, it's not hard to dig up this phone call. Like, if it's an official channel, I'm sure a, a tape is sitting somewhere, whether it's in the Oval Office or in Fort Meade, where this 
um, existed. So, plus there was this memo, and um, yeah, I mean, it looks to have happened. And again, look, this was reported that it happened. Uh, the March call was reported in May of 2017 that it happened, and Trump pushed back. Like, why would I do that? I would have no reason to do that. And uh, Mike Rogers went in front of Congress and said, you know, I wasn't ordered to do anything. There was no sort of pushing to cover up a collusion or anything like that. And while that statement in a vacuum may be truthful, looking back now with what we know with the report dropping on Thursdays, now the president tried to put his thumb on this uh, wherever he could. And it wasn't just uh, the NSA director, CIA director, uh, then Mike Pompeo, ODNI, Dan Coates. They all got phone calls that was like, uh, hey, can you uh, bail me out here? And they all were like, just go away, let it run its course. So when you hear these claims of, of fake news, it might not be so fake. Yeah, sad. Hackers backed by a nation state have successfully hijacked domain name system records to steal credentials from approximately 40 public and private entities across 13 countries in an attack that's lasted for about two years. The ongoing attack targets intelligence agencies, military organizations, and energy firms, along with foreign ministries, other telecom companies, and internet service providers. Cisco's researchers characterize the attackers as, quote, highly capable and unusually brazen, but don't go so far as to identify what country may be behind the attack. DNS hijacking allows hackers to gain credentials from victim entities in order to control the target's DNS records without flagging to the victims that they're actually under attack. By using the DNS records, attackers are capable of rerouting user traffic to what appears to be legitimate websites, but which only attacker-controlled servers allow them to conduct further pilfering of credentials. Now, Jen, this attack group was called Sea Turtle. So why I bet you like the name based on some of the other names that we've talked about, it seems to be a lot more dangerous than it sounds. It does, but it also seems like it's just out there for a really long time without people detecting it, which, same with the Sea Turtle. But, I mean, <laughs> okay, I, I like your logic there for the name. I guess, but I mean, just that it's able to attack intelligence agencies and in and, and the military and energy is yeah. super scary. It's interesting from the standpoint of there really is no way to guard against this right now. Uh, DNS sec is something that I don't want to, it's not woefully bad from a like tool standpoint or from an action standpoint, it's just you can't guard against it. it it's re really tough to guard against. There are really no tools that can guard against this stuff because otherwise you break the internet. Um, so it's really, really interesting to watch. More and more of these have started to pop up, these DNS attacks, and it's yeah. due to the fact that there is a security hole around it. So I would not be surprised if we are talking about something like this a month from now, two months from now. I mean, we've seen it pop up. I think this is the third or fourth time we've been talking about a DNS is, yeah. hijack since mm -hmm. we've started this podcast. So it goes to show that uh, attackers are getting smart in finding the real holes that, that underlie the networking of the entire internet. So, um, yeah, uh, really, really interesting and really something that top-level industries like the government, like energy firms, like telecom companies need to be aware of uh, as attackers keep moving to do this type of stuff. Well, hopefully we'll find a startup that is solving this problem. <laughs> hey, yeah, there's the opportunity for you. So the White House top cyber defense official says a more streamlined framework for conducting offensive operations is yielding dividends. The new structure that the White House put in place last year gives more authority to the people who need 
to actually make decisions about offensive hacking operations, federal CISO Grant Schneider said Tuesday. In prepared remarks, Schneider also reflected on the challenges of deterring U.S. adversaries in cyberspace. Quote, I don't think Vladimir Putin is going to roll up his cyber tools and go away before we have a bigger, potentially cyber-offensive tool, he said. Greg, what's the backstory with this process? So it's PPD-20 that was thrown out uh, a couple months ago, and a new system was put in place, and it seems to have cut down on a lot of the bureaucracy. Um, We know that governments love to create bureaucracy, and for a while there, that seemed to be the way things worked with determining whether we were going to launch uh, cyber offensive operations. And now it seems like the new model, which I believe is called like Presidential Security Memorandum 13, you know, one of those boring names, um, seems to have uh, fixed the streamlined process now it's now i guess people can pick up the phone and call one or two people have some lawyers talk about it and boom we have something that looks to be offensive in nature i I go back to the operation that was waged i should say allegedly waged although it's been pretty confirmed at this point where uh uh, the run-up to the 2018 midterm elections the u.s took out um the IRA's like infrastructure, mm-hmm. like just mm-hmm. DDoS them or just, just totally took it offline. I would imagine that that process went through this new memorandum and it went faster and we got out there and did our thing and we didn't see Russia try to pull anything, you know, in the like 72 hours yeah. around the election. So this process seems to be working. So good things. Interesting. So time to go around the world. Brazil has been a hotbed for financially motivated cybercrime for some time, but new research from Recorded Futures shows how a select group of the country's black hats are able to circumvent two-factor authentication to steal money. Brazilian cyber criminal gangs are organized into cells that concentrate on software development, operations, money laundering, in a way that the disruption of one or more cells does not affect the business, according to the report released by Recorded Future. Jen, it sounds like cyber criminals are following the same startup methods that U.S. startups follow. I mean, Brazil is a hotbed for startups as well, so this makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's really funny whether it's Brazil, Eastern Europe, Russia, India, Asia, China – there's more and more customer service going into <laughs> cybercrime. Like it's um, so really funny because I don't, you know, you, you think about all of the criminal enterprises that go on that are tied to the internet. Like drug traffickers aren't necessarily having customer service lines where it's like, oh, you know, where's my, where are my kilos? Like who do I call because my kilos weren't delivered or if it's like arms trade it's where are my illegal guns or this is so fascinating to me that this is such an illegal means of earning money but yet there's this whole support operation to it where it's like oh did those credit cards not work for you let's get you into a call center and we'll figure this out to make sure that you're a happy customer like what like what is this world that that we're living in here where you can actually have customer support for your crimes and you can do it without being detected. I mean, you're still able to get away with it for a year or two years and, and make it work. So that's interesting. Yeah. Um, fascinating things to watch in Brazil. And to 
anybody that is really, really interesting, dig in a little bit here. It's not just the cybercrime, the financial aspect of this. There's been a lot of like government data, like taxpayer IDs, um, the equivalent of social security numbers have just been dumped out there. Like Brazil is actually like getting hit and getting hit hard over the past couple of months. So if you want to keep your eyes on some interesting stuff going on, follow what's going on in Brazil when it comes to cybercrime. So across the world in India, the amount of Indian payment card data for sale on the dark web surged by 219% last year, according to research from Gemini Advisory. The third intelligence firm combed over 60 underground markets and found Indian card data available in all of them. Quote, the rising cost of Indian compromised payment cards and the demand for such cards suggest that criminals have identified multiple reliable ways of monetizing such data, according to Gemini Stas Alfarov who told Cyberscope. So 219% is really staggering. Yeah. Um, just think about the number of people that we know live in India. Like we're talking like one of the most, yeah. one of the more populous countries in the world. And they're still an up and coming country, but a lot of people rely on payment cards the same way that they do in developed nations. So to talk about a surge of 219% means that there's some security in the payment card industry uh, in India that needs to be uh, looked at uh, a little bit differently. Um, that's just a wild, wild growth number. Um, for, for the amount of cards that are floating around on the dark web. Amazing. And is it that the security is just different in India compared to the U.S., for instance? I'm when not... When it comes to payment cards? Um, not so much that it's necessarily the payment cards. I think it's a lot to do with the third-party storage of that information. Um, that makes all sense. of the yeah. IT outsourcing that goes on in India, I mean, they're using the same type of cloud instances. Um, they're using, you know, the same type of infrastructure, but maybe they're just, they don't have the same rigid standards that we do in the U.S. And even though we have those standards in the U.S., we see payment card data on the dark web all the time from the U.S. So um, it's, it's clear that there are some, you know, just the, the grand technological issues that lead to all of this are now affecting India as they continue to, um, you know, become more and more developed. Maybe we should start putting money on our mattress again. <laughs> hey, uh, nobody's going to hack that. So more than 6.7 million records on Iranian drivers from 2017 to 2018 were estimated to be exposed in a database discovered by researcher Bob Dianchenko. Information included drivers' first and last names, their Iranian ID numbers stored in plain text, their phone numbers, and other such data like invoice information. The data is now secured, but the actual number of people affected in the breach is likely less than 6.7, according to Dianchenko, because the database contains multiple files referring to the same people. While the origin of the breach remains unclear, Dianchenko suggested it may have been stolen from the Iranian ride-hailing company's Snap or tap 30. Jen, imagine if Uber had a 6.7 million record. Wait a minute. Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. It's It's been much, much worse over here. But um, no, uh, yeah, speaking to what we were just talking about with India, the, the same problems in that have affected the developed world are now starting to hit the develop you know the developing world. Not a, not a great breach for what looks to be um, Iranian Uber. No, but 
what is someone doing with those records? Like, what? Who cares? Well, you could say the same thing for a number of like data exposures that we've talked yeah. about. I mean, we haven't think about. I just think OPM comes to mind. Um, that database being stolen, and it's like, well, okay, we haven't seen it on the dark web, so what are we really worried about here? And it's like, well, it's it, it's sitting somewhere, probably in a database run by some na- nation state that they're using to just collate and and run against other databases. I mean, we, we know what's possible with data. So um, while, in, you know, in a vacuum, it's like, okay, it was exposed. Who really cares? We don't know if anybody's done anything malicious with it. It's like, well, it's just information. You can use it in any way that you want. And who's to say that somebody isn't going to eventually use it maliciously? I mean, is there any recourse here for, you know, if I'm – if I was one of those people that got hacked or, or my records were found out there, I mean, am I able to get some sort of compensation for the fact that my information is now sort of sitting out there? I'm really not sure if there's some Iranian class action lawsuit. I mean, we could talk about it all day within terms of the U.S. I'm not up to date on uh, Iranian um, yeah. data privacy law. I'm, I mean, GDPR doesn't really... It doesn't uh, extend. Yeah, yeah. D- doesn't extend to uh, Iran, and I'm not sure that Iran has any similar laws like that. I, I would imagine that they don't, um, but at the same time, it, it'd probably be the same you know, recourse. Looking at, looking at it through the U.S. lens, you would either... You know, it would be like anything else, identity theft protection, and maybe you could sign up for a class action lawsuit where you might get 20 bucks in the long run. I mean, I guess I just wonder if by exposing that this is out there, um, if it doesn't just make us all more vulnerable because um, if they can't figure this out, what else can I find um, out there? Oh, of course. For, no, there, there are for tons. The Iranian people. There are literally, whether it's uh, Iranian or anything else, there are tons of services out there right now that are combing public uh, cloud buckets. Yeah. And, I mean, it's it is another bullet point in a long list of data that we've seen that just needs to be better protected. A hacking company that targeted victims around the world. Use Blogspot, Pastebin, and the link shortening service Bitly to carry out its attacks, according to the new research. Palo Alto's Unit 42 research group in March uncovered that is called the AGA campaign, a digital crime spree focused on organizations in the U.S., Middle East, Europe, and throughout Asia. The group distributes malicious macro-enabled documents, which rely on Blogspot posts and multiple Pastebin posts for command and control infrastructure. Researchers suggested the hacking campaign originated with the Gorgon Group, a collective that's carried out a string of attacks from Pakistan over the past year. Though Unit 42 said it's too soon to directly attribute the Gorgon Group with any level of certainty. So what else do you know about the Gorgon Group, and who still uses Bitly? Um, I didn't know you'd that be was surprised. Still Actual Bitly um, is still used. Bitly was used by uh, the Russian group that hit the DNC. That was... Part of, and part of the forensics that actually was used to trace back to the Russians. So not many people anymore, apparently, but apparently this group still wants to use it uh, as sure part I'd of its Because I'm not sure click on a Bitly link. Um, but I am very, very careful. I 
yeah I, yeah, I don't either unless I know where it's coming from. Like if it's coming from a trusted source, I would do it. But I would also tell that person, like, just send me a regular link. Please yeah. don't send me a Bitly link. Um, but this group, um, yeah, the Gorgon Group, has spent the last year performing hacking operations all over the globe, went against government agencies here in the U.S., in the U.K., Spain, Russia. Um, this looks to be the... Pakistani equivalent of, I don't want to say the NSA, but it's Pakistani hackers that are propped up by the Pakistani government. And CyberScoop has seen some of the actual forensics that point to what exactly it is Pakistan has been hacking here. So it's really, really interesting to see who they're targeting, what organizations they're targeting, and what their motives are. Like, it's a really, really interesting cyber warfare story that hopefully we're going to have something on soon. So that's a small tease to something that we've uh, been working on for uh, a couple weeks. But this is definitely a group that is on the radar now and uh, a group that if you're interested in following these nation state uh, hackers, definitely pay attention to what's going on with the Gorgon Group. I look forward to reading what you're working on. So cyber espionage campaigns are no longer just the domain of governments with massive cybersecurity resources. A cyber espionage campaign linked with the so-called Luhansk People's Republic targeted Ukrainian government entities earlier this year, including military departments, according to a new report from FireEye that was released this week. Although this campaign is limited to Ukraine, the hackers are worth watching since they have wisened up and this time used more sophisticated tactics that can evade traditional antivirus software. It's unclear at this time if the actors were successful in stealing data, but FireEye said it wouldn't be surprised if they were. So, Jen, what's an episode of this podcast if we're not talking about something that Russia is probably behind? Oh, this was our first Russian story today. Wow. Yeah. Um, the This... So-called Luhansk People's Republic, I honestly had not heard of it until this FireEye report. We dug a little bit more. It seems to be just this group that is backed by the Russian military but says they're independent. Of course. We had some experts say that they're actually more of a terrorist group, which I don't fully understand how that's possible yet, but okay, so this group is on the radar in that they have uh, cybersecurity capabilities. And man, Ukraine, they have an election this weekend, and it seems like they're just getting attacked from all angles um, before this election gets underway. I mean, what's on an election without Russia? <laughs> right? So. Yeah, just um, it, it is, it, it's going to be really interesting to watch this weekend to see if anything really gets hit hard because we know that we're probably going to see that elsewhere and into the end of 2019 and possibly into 2020. Absolutely. So the National Guard has been playing a larger role in protecting the nation's election infrastructure and an annual drill taking place this month is a large reason why. From its humble beginning several years ago, the Cyber Shield exercise is now an 800-person affair with the participation from 40 states, law enforcement, and NSA. As adversary changes their TTPs, we change our TPPs, said George Battistelli, Jr., a cybersecurity program manager at the Army National Guard. So, Greg, tell us more about the exercise. So, I think it's really interesting because, look, we talk so much about uh, election security and what is going on at the state level and who's really responsible for guarding against all of the uh, possible attacks that could come beyond the federal government but still hit the government 
and I think that the National Guard is a really interesting place to try to build up and, and have on the state level when it comes to protecting elections or state governments or like th there's a capability there that I think is really really interesting and I think more and more the National Guard is starting to understand that that like this can be our opportunity to bring in more people train more people and be better protected um, I mean Cyber Shield, uh, like we said it, it was really really small but since it's built up uh, it's starting to build out a roster of over 3,800 people I mean, 3,800 people inside the National Guard. I mean, that, that's, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of security analysts. That's a lot of, of people that are watching the, the front lines here. I mean, if you talk about DHS, I think DHS overall and their cyber mission has less than that. I think it's like 2,500, and they're watching over, you know, the federal government and, and all of this yeah. sensitive stuff. So to see that the, the National Guard has almost 4,000 cybersecurity personnel, that seems to be a good well to pull from when we're talking about what goes on at the state level and especially election security. I go back to that. I think that it's such a good idea to train up these people and have them be on watch when it comes to elections. It really is, and National Guard's not who comes to mind when I think election security. So that's that's pretty cool. So, Jen, here's one that is just infuriating. Um, security vendor Fortinet has agreed to pay the equivalent of $545,000 to settle allegations it illegally sold the U.S. military Chinese technology disguised as American-made equipment. The company agreed to pay the government $400,000 and provide the U.S. Marine Corps with equipment valued at $145,000 to resolve charges it violated the False Claim Act from January 2009 until the fall of 2016. Fortinet acknowledged that an employee responsible for supply chain management altered labels on products to make them appear compliant with the Trade Agreements Act, which is a law prohibiting federal agencies from acquiring products in specific companies. The unnamed employee directed others at Fortinet to include the phrases designed in the United States and Canada or assembled in the United States before those products were sold to distributors and resellers who resold the technology to the government. Jen, that fine seems a little small, doesn't it? So first, who's going to jail? And two, one employee, just one employee was responsible for this. I find that hard to believe. Yeah. Um, I mean, how much equipment is $145,000 worth of equipment that had to be ripped out and, you know, replaced? And all you're talking about was one dude that was legitimately just I mean, like to be fair. ripping off stickers or scratching off labels? Like, I... I, I find that hard to believe. I mean, to be fair, this is the government, so it could just be like a laptop. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, yeah, just uh, 30, 30 laptops or, or 30 boxes that was sitting in a data center somewhere. But still, even that, like, that is, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I try not to be hyperbolic when I, I, I talk about some of this stuff. That This is just outrageous. Like, it's borderline disgusting to me that you would do that. Like, for for what for what for a hundred thousand dollars like if you're Fortinet you're you're a contractor that takes in hundreds of millions from the federal government what was it really worth it to to like it's absurd to me the idea that there was somebody in a room somewhere literally scratching off stickers and slapping made in USA stickers over made in China stickers on Fortnite appliances. I mean, that's insane. It's just, it's absolutely ridiculous. I think the fine is is way too small, but I'm sure this will be swept under the rug and 
that's that. Onward. The Q's leader of an advertising fraud scheme wrote a letter last week to Judge Edward Corman of the Eastern District of New York asking for assistance in finding a new lawyer. Alexander Zukov and four other men are accused of using more than 1,900 computer servers to simulate humans viewing ads on fabricated web pages. The group, known as MethBot, developed relationships with legitimate ad networks, collecting at least $7 million between 2014 and 2016. Zukov has asked for a lawyer with a similar track record in ad fraud cases. You think Zukov is going to get his wish, Greg? Uh, I don't, only because the lawyer that he has asked for. He asked for a particular lawyer in his letter to the court. That lawyer had no idea that this Zhukov asked for him until we called him for comment to be like, oh, interesting. oh so are you going to represent this guy? And he was like, who are you and what are you talking about? Um, so uh, it's clear that the judge has not, or, you know, the, the, the court has not been like, oh, yeah, we'll get right on that and we'll try to work this out for you. But I will say that it's interesting that this um, Zhukov went after this particular lawyer because this particular lawyer, uh, Simone uh, uh, Bertinelli, I think is his name, forgive me if that isn't directly correct, represented an Italian man in 2010 that did something that was very, very similar to this um, ad fraud network and got it knocked down from like a felony to uh, a misdemeanor, which... I mean, you're still guilty at this point, but uh, at the same time, it fits exactly with what this case is. But I also wouldn't be surprised if the judge is like, you don't get to appoint your own lawyer. Like, that's not how this works. Like, you can go pay for whatever lawyer you want, but you don't get to pick and choose who we federally appoint. Well, and who has ever had that ability to request a pro bono you, appointed lawyer. Right. You, no, you can you can absolutely request it. It's totally up to the court to be like, okay, we'll fulfill your request. And I I don't think that that, that just doesn't happen. And that it's also up to the lawyer because the, the lawyer that he asked for is not a federal defender. It's not just one that he plucked off the heap of federal defenders. This guy's a private attorney. So it's also up to the attorney to be like, uh, yeah, I'll work for pro bono. Like, I'll do this pro bono. Absolutely. Like, but it seems to me that if you're able to be smart enough to make seven million dollars in ad fraud you're smart enough to figure out who that right lawyer is ahead of time and put them on retainer just in case you get caught well because that's what i feel like i would do there's there's that um right also but i also don't think that this guy ever thought he was going to be caught so there was no need to to procure the lawyer and here we are like hey yeah you might be smart enough to uh, run an ad fraud uh, network but you, you know criminals are dumb <laughs> like <laughs> in the cyber realm and everywhere else yeah, criminals more yeah. often than not are pretty pretty dumb so finally most of the valuable security vulnerabilities reported to bug bounty programs are found by just a fraction of the freelance researchers who participate in these contests recent reports show suggesting there are not enough skilled bounty hunters to handle the available work. 
The trend has big implications for an industry that has come to expect regular growth over the past half decade. For the companies, it means their customers are paying to hear about lots of low severity bugs while more critical problems potentially remain undiscovered. More than 300,000 hackers have signed up to HackerOne and roughly 10% have found something to report, and just more than a quarter of those have received a bounty, the company has said. By that math, some 97% of the hackers have never sold a bug, according to Katie Masuris, founder of Luda Security and former HackerOne employee and just uh, uh, the bug bounty god. As the economics and perception shift, the bug bounty business model will need to change in order to survive, say industry practitioners and market research analysis. So... Jen, this is really, really interesting to us. We did a really, really big story on it, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts as to whether we've now run up against uh, the wall when it comes to bug bounty programs and the market here. So why, so I have a question for you first. So why did only a quarter of the people who found bugs get paid? I think a lot of the times you see bugs submitted to companies and they go, oh, this isn't a this isn't part of the program, so we're not paying you for it, but thank you for your work anyway. Or oh, somebody already reported this and okay. we were in the midst of fixing it. Or sometimes you just have shady companies that are just like, uh, well, okay, well we're just not going to to pay that out. Um, so that's why you don't see a lot of hackers getting paid. But also that ninety seven percent number that 97% of hackers have never sold a bug, either because the systems that they've found, they don't find the bugs that they're looking for, or there just aren't any bugs in that direct bounty program. So remember, the bounty programs have definitive lines drawn around what, what hackers can poke around in. So they're not getting to go through an entire network to find bugs. Otherwise, you'd have these companies just paying out, paying out, paying out, paying out. And why would they have to hire somebody internally you know so th- there's that um whole issue as well but yeah um i think that it- it's really really interesting that you see there's you know like the one percent it's there's a select number of people that are finding high value bugs and then the rest is just little stuff and i i, I mean if you have three hundred thousand hackers sign up for your system i imagine that you know, a very small percentage of them are one serious, two are really good. Right. And that's the thing. You know, some of those top level people already do this for a living. So they're just doing this on the side just because they find it fun. Like it, it, it's not they already are part of a pen testing company or do it, you know, on, on their own and get paid for it. But sure. then yeah. just do this as recreation or a way to keep their skills hot. Um, so it, it it's not it just goes to show that we've talked about this a lot and the community has talked about this a lot too is that look bug bounty programs they're a good way to get crowdsourced security you should not be relying on a bug bounty program as a linchpin for your security plan it's just not going to work out and this story is a big reason why it's just it's it's really not sustainable from the standpoint of making it a security linchpin for your organization so now we're going to get to our interview with Andrew Morris from Gray Noise. Gray Noise is a fantastic tool that combs away the threats that everybody's seeing when they normally scan internet traffic and actually gets to threats that matter. Very, very interesting company. Very, very interesting conversation. But first, 
If you have been to one of our events, you know that we're not your typical cybersecurity conference, so we're taking our show on the road again this year. From September 16th to 20th, we will be hosting New York Cyber Week in New York City. The week, as always, is about big ideas, big talks, and doing something impactful for the greater good of technology. Register now to join 60-plus community events around the Big Apple, and for more information on what we have planned, check out nycyberweek.com. Okay, joining us now is Andrew Morris, the founder of Gray Noise. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So let's lead off with what exactly is Gray Noise and what does it do? Yeah, so Gray Noise is a company where basically what we do is we uh, we soak up all of the background noise of the internet, all of the people that are scanning and attacking uh, devices all around the entire internet, good guys like Shodan, bad guys like botnets, things like that. We soak up all of the internet-wide background scan and attack traffic, and we analyze it, and we filter it out from what our customers see to make them incrementally more efficient and basically reduce false positives, identify compromised devices, provide context, things like that. So we we basically tell everybody the expected traffic to see on their perimeter to kind of make them more efficient. How did you get started in cybersecurity, and what made you start Gray Noise? I got started in cybersecurity when I was 13 years old um, because I got... I got. I was a giant script kitty, and I just thought being a hacker was cool. And I used Linux, and I uh, wanted to be a hacker man. And I. <laughs> that was basically how I got started. I had to, like the. I had a computer. Uh, Windows blew up, so I had to install Linux, and then that's like you know uh, an undertaking in and of itself, especially if you're like a 13 year old. So that was just kind of all all downhill from there. Um, got my first job in security. I did the OSCP, and then I got my first job in security. Uh, when I was, I was still pretty young as a pen tester um, in D.C. for like a medium-sized fence contractor that ended up getting bought by Mantech. And so I was just doing kind of pen testing stuff. And I joined the research team over at Endgame and got really interested in the um, internet-wide, like the internet background noise problem, which seemed like unlimitedly interesting and undocumented um, and like specific and weird and just interest esoteric and just right up my alley, checking all the boxes for me. And um, and then basically uh, kind of set out to, I kept waiting for a long time for somebody to start the company that was like looking at all of the internet wide scan and attack traffic on the internet and no one was doing it. And I just kept waiting and waiting and no one was doing it. And then finally, you know, in 2017, I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm, I'm doing it now. And I left Endgame to start Grey Noise. Um, and uh, basically, that was how it got started. Yeah, talk to us a little bit more about what exactly it was or when it was when that light bulb went off in your head that was like, mm. oh, wait, nobody is doing this. Why isn't anybody doing this? Okay, I, I'm, I'm going to do this. There were a lot of different things that happened. Um, it was it was a process. There was no one thing. There was no one light. It was a process. There were many small lights. Okay. Um, and one of the big ones, actually, believe it or not, was Norse. You remember? The Pew Pew Matt. Yeah, right. yeah, 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 Norse. So interestingly, like, Norse was a really interesting cybersecurity company. Like, aside from the fact that their marketing was completely over the top and that, like, the Pew Pew Map and, like, no one really knew what their product was. But, like, okay. the map was gorgeous and, you know, like, all this stuff, right? The really interesting thing about Norse when that was kind of, like, kind of blowing up and they were getting a little bit of traction was that functionally all they were doing is they had, like, honeypots set up on the Internet they were looking at who was scanning or probing or attacking those honeypots. Then they were selling that data as threat intelligence in an appliance 
to different companies around the world and saying, we'll protect you from all these threats that you didn't even know about, but we're going to protect you from them now, right? And I don't remember what it was, but that just always felt kind of wrong. There, it's, there was something that didn't sit right with me about that. And it took a long time for me to realize, for it to really kind of register that, like, this isn't this isn't like the like attacks that people should care about. Like this is the stuff that's hitting everybody on the entire internet. This isn't like APT stuff. This isn't this isn't like, oh, I should freak out about this. This is actually the opposite. Right? This is the standard baseline amount of attacks that are just hitting everyone on the entire internet, right? So calling that threat intelligence is it it doesn't feel right, you okay. know? And so this is this is just the stuff that, that everyone sees. So basically gray noise is like functionally remarkably similar to Norse. I can't believe I just said that, but it is, but it, but it is, right? But it's, but instead of we, us calling it threat intelligence, it's like the opposite, right? What we're doing is we're not saying, no, don't freak out about this. We have all these passive collector sensors all around the internet. Instead, what we're doing is we're saying, no, this is just the normal amount of stuff that's hitting everybody. Ignore this, right? This is not a targeted attack. Just filter this out from your logs or filter this out to, so that you, you know that this is something that's kind of hitting everybody architecturally it was really similar to that but the way that we positioned it is is the exact opposite and so that was that was a really big kind of moment with like them doing that and me trying to figure out what it was that just didn't quite seem right about that and then i, I mean i'm not sure what that company is doing now i don't believe they're doing i i, I think the pew pew map is still up but i think that it's just like an internet relic at this I, point. I, I don't think Morse i think that you're right part of a company i think you're right and so that was like i mean it was like you know kind of um, yeah, like we do kind of exactly the opposite. There's that. And then, I mean, a few kind of other things like, um, at some point as like a thought exercise, I just started thinking about how like a lot of security analysts, and I was talking to a lot of security analysts, stock analysts and stuff like that. And I was hearing a lot of like pain around false positives okay. and a lot of pain around alert fatigue and a lot of pain around noise and a lot of pain around th- those kinds of things. And so a combination of those things together where it was just kind of like, you know, there's a lot of security companies that are trying to provide data on what to freak out about. And there's really no security companies that are trying to tell companies what not to freak out about. And there's no companies that are trying to like chip away at maybe the, you know, maybe the alerts that don't matter or something like that. There's nobody that's taking it from the exact opposite way and providing that like as, as somebody called it, like, negative ground truth of, okay. like, this is just normal. So it's a combination of, like, all of those things. And so it's like, okay, well, we can do that. You know, and, like, instead of us instead of us having the value prop of, like, well, we're going to block these attacks doing this thing, it's really we're just going to make you more efficient by helping you figure out the things that don't, that don't really matter. So what type of intel are you actually showing? So are you basically saying here's all the threats that you shouldn't even bother with and then here's what you should Exactly, what are you doing? Yeah, so basically, what happens is um, you are a security analyst. Mm-hmm. You come in, you look at your whatever your SIM is or your dashboard or your pipeline that you already have set up, your tools that you already use. We'll just say Splunk, right? And so you've got, you'll have maybe some alerts from maybe your IDS that yeah. are going, that are feeding into Splunk, and those get enriched against the Gray Noise API. And so basically we have an integration with Splunk and then it enriches against our API and it tells you like, okay, you know, since you came in here last, you saw 20 IDS alerts from these different places, but like nine of those were generated by IPs that were literally just hitting everybody on the entire internet. They were not hitting you. So, you know, in the order of operations, probably look at the other 11 first, right? 
and then make sure that those are there were no compromises that they didn't establish access or anything now go back and look at those other things now that you've looked at the important things and just make sure like okay you know this um these are the less important alerts come back to those deprioritize those right does that make sense it does yeah so is the value prop here that you are saving time yes yes so basically um there is there is some number i mean the shortest like pitch that I give to people if I have like literally like 30 seconds to tell somebody what we do is I just say um, security operations centers are busy. They're busy because they have too many alerts. Some of those alerts don't matter. We'll tell you the alerts that don't matter. You get more time to focus on the ones that do matter. Have you been doing this long enough to be able to sort of put a number around how much time you're saving? Yeah. So it depends on the size of the SOC. It depends on the maturity of the SOC. It depends on how many... Um, of the alerts that the SOC or the incidents or the tickets, so to speak, that the SOC is looking at that are generated from the perimeter that are like ingress, right? Um, and so kind of it, it depends on all of those different things, somewhere between 5 and 40%. Wow. Yeah. So, so some SOC, I mean, 40% is a big number. 40% is a big number, yeah. yeah. Um, and so that's for uh, a SOC that's maybe, and I don't want to say that it's like, well, I mean, it is. It's That's a SOC that's maybe hasn't been around as long. Yeah. Um, and so, um there's a lot of security operations centers will do what gray noise does. They'll kind of like, they, they have that, um, that workflow as part of the process already in triage is like, are we seeing this across multiple customers? Then we can guess maybe that it is hitting everybody, but there's no ground truth. So some people have already kind of, um, are already redoing what our product does. And then some socks are not, so to speak. So all of this is to say that basically, um, if the security operations center is, uh, is really, really, really mature, and they've already tuned everything to be as unnoisy as humanly possible. We will save them a little bit less time, right? Sure. But if the sock is, um, if the sock is, if or if the the customers are um, on more chaotic or unsecure networks, like I don't know, hosting providers, ISPs, things like that, okay. um, then a significant amount of the things that they're going to see are going to be just completely opportunistic attacks. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. So what are they doing with that safe time? Uh, ideally, spending that same amount of save time on other alerts that matter more. Um, or taking, yeah, I mean, that's presumably, or working on any of the other number of things but that they have going on. You're seeing people be more secure as in they're spending that time looking at things versus cutting a person or... Yeah, that's actually, I mean, so this this comes up when we, when we go because yeah. I don't... From my position, I'm trying to build something that the analyst is really excited about and that the analyst loves to use. Um, and, you know, it can be challenging to, in the same breath, uh, basically say, one thing I want to avoid is to come in and say, like, hey, analysts, we're going to save you all this time. And also, like, the way that our product works is going to be that the boss can cut 40% of the analysts in here, yeah. right? That's the elephant in the room when we talk about this. Um, nobody has, like... None of our customers so far take that approach because what we've found is that there's already so many things to do anyways that we're just making them better at the things already. Um, and so that's that's the way that people have been using it right now. And so I don't I, I don't really feel like to actually get the the value out of it or to get the to get the ROI that you do actually have to like reallocate resources in that way because it turns out that there are still so many things to do that you know you've got now you just have it's like 
it's like you just have like a few extra people around to help with the things that you already you know need to do. Does that make sense? So you have uh, Grey Noise is a free product and there's a commercial product. Can yes. you talk about the differences there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. Um, we have a free open API that is sitting there that anyone can hit that has a, a limited amount of functionality. You can really only do two things with it. You can say, here's an IP, tell me some things about this IP. Or you can say, here's like a tag or a category, tell me the last 500 IPs that match this criteria okay. that, that match this tag, right? Okay. Those are the two things that you can do. It doesn't have any support. Like if you, um, you know, you, you can't, uh, you can't really, like we don't, we don't officially support it for, you know, for, um, and we won't like generally answer questions about it or anything like that, but it's, people can still get a lot of value out of it and a lot of people use it. And then the enterprise product has licensing and SLA support and we integrate with basically everything under the sun. Um, so whatever the SIM is that they're already using, like we'll integrate with that. Um, we have basically like the enterprise API right now is a lot more full featured. We, we haven't added any new features to the open API in like a year and a half. Um, but what I suspect that's the way that it goes right now, the way that I suspect that it's going, the plan right now is that we're going to basically combine them into the same thing. And we're basically going to have so that you can up to a certain amount, you can use the free one, but they're going to be identical code bases. It's going to be all the same thing. You can use it up to a certain amount free. And then if you use it above, I don't know, a thousand times a day, I have no idea what that number is, Mm -hmm. uh, then you have to get in touch with us and give us money. So that code base, I heard that you actually still maintain the code base yourself. How do you balance that when you're trying to get this company? Me personally? Yeah, well, you're trying to get this company off the ground. So I'm wondering, you know, there's the technical aspect of it, but then you have to do all the business business aspects of it. So I'm wondering how you balance that load or if it's been difficult for you or talk to me a little bit about what you've been doing there. Yeah, it has been extremely difficult. Um, <laughs> for the first uh, year and a half, it was it was literally just me. Okay. Um, and the open secret in Gray Noise was that like I always, refer- I always talked about the team, but it was like, and I would always say we, but it was like, there was no we. Yeah. It was just me. It was, the, it, was the, it was the royal we, right? Okay. Um, and so then um, we... Uh, I brought in a few people to help over the last like six months, um, and so we are three right now with two more people starting uh, this next month. So we'll be five by the end of the month. Um, so now it's a lot better now that there's like a team of people kind of devoted to working on each one, each one of these things. But to, to answer your question more specifically, um, yes, it was very hard to both maintain the code base, write all the features, and do all the sales, business development, money, uh, funding stuff. Uh, I don't have, I don't know what else to say about it other than it sucked. And it was, it was really, it was really hard. It was a lot of work. I didn't get a lot of sleep. Um, and it was, it was unique. It was, it was, it was, it was very, very challenging. Yeah. What's next on your roadmap in terms of development? Uh, we have a lot of really, really, really cool features that we're working on right now that I'm really, really excited about. Uh, so we're doing, we're going to enable people to do, more, we have a new command line tool that's really cool for people who like love the command line. I love the command line. So this, I use the new command line tool, which is great. Um, that is really exciting that um, that uh, one of our people built um, that I'm, I'm really thrilled about. We are going to be revamping our front end, our visualizer that about 
30% of people who use Gray Noise, the free version right now, use it through our web application instead of using it through the free API. And so those 30% of you know, however many people that is, um, they're going to be really happy to see a new front end that has a lot more functionality to it that they can use um, to, to get some value like out of the product and you know do some uh, and, and uh, collect information that way. We have a bunch of new features with lo- some lower level stuff where... For example, people are going to be able to submit their own. People are going to be able to submit their own criteria soon. They're going to be able to submit their own tags for things that we're going to be tracking on our side. They're going to be able to do public-private comments to basically be able to say like, "Oh, this thing we you know we confirmed that this is in fact noise and it's the CV," and they can either share that with the rest of the community or they can just internally have those comments available to themselves and their team, uh, which I'm really excited about. Um, people are going to be able to submit kind of like virus total. People are going to be able to do like retro hunts against the data historically to look at things that have happened in the past. Um, we've got a lot of really cool new data sharing partnerships with um, different hosting providers, MSSPs, other cybersecurity companies around the world. So our data corpus is going to get a lot bigger this year, which is really cool. Um, because that's basically going to give us just a better lens on, on what we're seeing. Right now, we collect most of the data ourselves. We have three data sharing partners, and we're going to have um, a lot more than that soon. And we're going to have, um, which is just basically going to increase the, um, it's going to increase the amount, the corpus of data that people are going to be seeing, which is going to give them a higher, like a, a higher confidence rate when they ask us questions. Um, so I'm really excited about those things. Those are the big things. Um, that I'm really excited. Sounds about. like a lot. It sounds like it's, it's going to be yeah. difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, there's, there's, there's definitely going to be a lot. And a big part of it now is that now that we have, we, you know, over this past few months, we have engineers that are starting that um, are much better programmers than I am, okay. and they have a lot of like my own debt that I introduced to to okay. go back and work through, right? Because I'm a good enough programmer to to get it all by and a good enough biz dev guy to do the sales for a little while. Not especially great at either one. So now we've got, <laughs> now we've got people who actually know what they're doing. And so they need to go, you know, go through and, and, uh, and make sure that everything's all in good shape. So it seems like you have a pretty firm grasp on the tools that are being used inside of SOC. What are the tools that you believe mm-hmm. are essential or ones that stand out to you that are really awesome? So what are some of the tools that people are using in the SOC right now that sure. people... Sure, or just over the, the course of time, just what tools do you believe are essential for a SOC to be well-run? Um, that is a really good question that if I start talking about that, I'm never going to shut up. <laughs> I would, <laughs> I would say... <laughs> I'll cut you off if I think, I think we're too far down the rabbit hole there. Yeah, so the kind of like there's... Standard tools, right, of um, like ticketing and information sharing. So you've got kind of whether it's Remedy or whether it's um, like a CAA product or anything like that for like just tracking actual like, you know, the workflows of incidents and moving those around. Um, uh, You know, things like things like a little bit more of static information sharing wikis and things like that. Um, Those those are really important for people to do just uh, to document normal things like that. The actual... um, the, the Sims and things like that. I mean, I, I like Splunk a lot. Um, they A lot of people use Splunk and swear by Splunk, and they have a giant ecosystem of products that are integrated in right now. Um, I'm really excited about Chronicle and Backstory right now, um, okay. though I've not used the product yet. Um, I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of the Chronicle folks um, over the past few weeks, and I'm like just super stoked about what they're doing, what they're building. Um, so I'm really going to be super excited to see that over the next few months. 
Um, I really like a lot of the sore products right now because they just they make sense. So like okay. Phantom and Demisto and those products, I'm a really big fan of, um, just because it's it's like a very natural like it's when you know as analysts have scriptable things that they want to do and more and more things become automatable, it makes sense that they're able to connect to as many different places and technologies to do as many different things as humanly possible. So I'm a really big fan of those. Also, I mean, selfishly, um, like gray noise plus every sore product ever makes like a lot of sense, right? That's like one of the places where it makes sense, where anytime an alert was about to be escalated, if it's checked against gray noise and it's like, hey, this thing's actually hitting everybody on the whole internet, then like maybe don't escalate that thing, right? So those products are really great. And then like people always have their giant pile of homegrown tools that everybody uses. um, And like having, um, uh, there's there's more, um, you know, having good um like source like custom tools uh in you know like with inside of git and things like that that people use um i find that like a tremendous amount of the tooling that people use in socks is custom um yeah and so i think that that's i mean that's pretty standard and pretty constant um from most of the socks that i work with um those are the big things off the top of my head what else besides tools should be in a well-rounded sock um, well, at this point, see, this is where I can give you what I think the answer is, but I have not worked in a sock. Like, I have not been a sock analyst myself in, like, or worked in that role in long enough to where okay. any any answer I would give you would be, I, would, I, I wouldn't feel good about my own answer. Fair. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, somebody, I don't know what other people would tell. I want to know the answer to that, too, actually. <laughs> well, from... You know, speaking to your clients and going beyond the tools, is it something like a mindset within the culture or is it just good management? Is it just like any other office place where it's just a leadership thing or is there something beyond just the technology? Because I feel like if it was just the technology, there might be a day, two, three, four, five years down the line where nobody's sitting in a sock. It's just a box over there right. that's doing all of the work. Yeah, and people people say that. Like, people, There are like product companies that strongly believe that the sock is going away and that it can be like automatable. Um, I think that there are elements of truth to that. Okay. I think that there's a tremendous amount of work that is done that collectively is um, can be um, can be automated. Okay. You know, like a lot of tasks that can be done that can be automated, and I think that's a good thing for everybody. Um, there's still just a tremendous I, – I, I'm not bought in that the sock will ever go away okay. um, and that it will be boxable. And I'm not saying that as a Luddite who is afraid of, of you know, of products automating, you know, jobs away or something like that. Okay. That's not why I'm saying that. I'm saying that because computers are weird and networks are weird and every network is is different and screwed up in its own way and every business is different. And so it's just extremely challenging for even seasoned human experts to look at certain things in the sock and, and d- deduce uh, whether they're good or bad, what the, the bad guy was after, things like that, what the value or the impact to the business is going to be. So like until people are able to do that like pretty effectively, it's uh, impossible to teach a, another computer to do that thing for you. So, um, so I mean, I do, th- I do think that, that that day is going to come eventually where a tremendous amount is going to be automated away. I don't see that in the near future. Okay. Yeah. That, and that's, I, again, like I, I want to stress a lot that it's it's not that I think that intrinsically that it's because um, there's anything that, that that I'm scared of that happening. It's just mostly that um, we're 
we're just really not there yet, I okay. think, as an industry. Yeah, and those products are, are not quite there yet. So, Andrew, every interview that we do on Curiosity ends with a random question. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Grey Noise, you know, you're looking to start up uh, a company. Hopefully, mm-hmm. one day, the, the fruits of that company uh, strengthen your bank account, mm-hmm. and you can mm-hmm. buy a boat. Mm-hmm. Maybe, 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 maybe rent a boat. Sorry, go ahead. Okay, what would the name of your boat be? What would the name of my boat be? That's a really good question. Um, I would name the boat after my dog. So my dog's name is Vinny. So I wouldn't name the boat Vinny because that would be confusing. Um, (laughs) But I would have, I would have, I would have some kind of, uh, some kind of reference to my dog in the boat name. There we go. I would, okay. I would also, for what it's worth, for the record, I would, I would rent the boat. I would. That's probably I would a not, smart thing to do. I would not. Smart thing I would not buy the boat. Okay. There you go. All right, Andrew. Uh, really appreciate you hopping aboard, and best of luck with Greenos. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks again to Andrew for joining us. Wait, so what would you name your boat? God, if I had to name my boat. Wow. Now I'm being put on the spot. Oh, um, yeah. It would probably be something Italian because if I'm rich enough to own a boat, I'm probably going to have the boat in like oh, you're the Mediterranean. Like yacht. Oh, yeah. Well, no, not just yacht. Some like maybe boat. like it, it would – again, if I had the money to buy – a boat, I'm not just going to buy, like, a, a fishing boat or anything like that. I'm not really a big fisher. So if I'm buying a boat, I'm buying it to stunt. And I, if I want to stunt, so, yeah, I'm guessing we're talking about a yacht. I'd have the <laughs> yacht on the Amalfi Coast probably in Italy oh, somewhere. Yeah. And I, I'd probably have it be something bougie and Italian. What about you? Oh, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe, like, our guest, I would name him somehow after my dog. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. A lot of dog. Everybody with naming their dogs and boats. I, I'm just, I, I'm going totally opposite. I'm being a total <laughs> douche about about how I would be when I would be rich enough to have a boat. So maybe stay curious. Maybe that would be a good Stay curious name. would be a good name, yeah. There you go. Speaking right. of, everyone stay curious. Have a good week. <laughs>